Our scripture reading this morning is Genesis 2, 15 through 25. But before we get to that, let's pray. Holy Father, Sovereign King, Merciful, Provider of every good thing, as we look into your word today, we pray that you will bless and protect each one of us, that you will smile on us and be gracious to us, that you will show us your favor and give us your peace. Amen. Genesis two, fifteen. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper as his complement. So the Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found as his complement. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. How many of you would like to have, um, have Bud in your car as you're driving and have him read the scriptures to you? <laughs> I, I saw his wife's hand go up right away. That's a, that's a, good, that's a good sign, Bud, uh, that your wife's hand went up uh, right away. Um, that, that, that's good. Well, we, um, in our journey uh, through the book of 1 Corinthians, we come to chapter 7 today. And you can go ahead and turn there now. We're going to come back to that Genesis passage in a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we come to a major uh, shifting point in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's a hinge, and I'm going to put verse 1 on the screen here as you're turning there. 
in the King James Version. And these uh, two words, now concerning, uh, let the reader know that we're shifting gears from what has been going on. Okay, so there's, there's, there's a major division. Remember these versification, these chapters and verses of the Bible uh, are only about a thousand years old. Uh, they, they, they weren't there uh, originally, of course, uh, but this is a good place to have a chapter division because Paul is saying here, now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me. So at this, from this point for the next uh, few sections, next few weeks, Paul is addressing something that the Corinthians had written to him about that he hasn't addressed yet. And now he's about to address that. Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me. And he says in the second part here, King James Version, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So let's talk a little bit about the second part of this uh, second verse, or second sentence here after the colon. It's not good for a man to touch a woman. This is an expression, a euphemism, when it is difficult to talk about certain things in settings or write about them and have the scripture read aloud, we use certain language. And so this language is referring to intimacy. Okay, It is not saying that it's uh, a wooden literalism here that if uh, you know a, a woman is needing an, an elbow... Uh, to make it up the, the icy stairway, uh, that we shouldn't uh, give her an elbow. Okay? That's obviously not what this, what this is saying. It's saying it is good for a man not to be with a woman. So here's the controversy, here's the issue, and this is related, those of you that were here last week, is what is after the colon here, Paul's response to what they wrote. Okay, They've written these things to him. And now is Paul saying, in response to what they wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. It is good for a man and a woman not to be together. And we're going to see later in the next few verses that this is in the context of marriage. So is Paul saying that it is not good for a man and a woman to be together in marriage? Or is he saying something else? So throughout church history, there have been a lot of people that have understood this to mean Paul is saying, yeah, this actually isn't a good thing. Marital relations. It's not a good thing. Let me show you uh, a man who in many respects I admire. I'm reading a biography uh, about him right now. A man from about the year 400 named John Chrysostom. He writes this about this verse. He says, uh, and this is in King James English here, all right? So just bear with us. Wherefore, he says, Paul, now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, for they had written to him whether it was right to abstain from one's wife or not. And writing back in answer to this and giving rules about marriage, he introduces also the discourse concerning virginity. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. For if... Says he, says, says Paul, thou inquire what is the excellent and greatly superior course. It is better not to have any connection with a woman. But if you ask what is safe and it is helpful to thine own infirmity, be connected by marriage. All right. 
You following what he's saying here? What he's doing, if you didn't follow this, he's saying marriage isn't really a good thing. And being together in marriage is especially not a good thing. It is good for a man not to be with a woman in marriage in general and in the specific way of coming together. This is how Chrysostom and many church leaders for centuries understood what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 7. Now the consequences of this are massive. Massive consequences. Anybody ever heard of feminism? The the church misunderstood and misapplied God's word for centuries. Now there were people who disagreed, but they were marginalized, kind of put out. This is how it went. And in fact, it was not uncommon in congregations in previous centuries for someone who was called to ministry, who was married, to basically put his wife aside with his call to ministry. This happened and was encouraged to happen and was viewed as a sign of spiritual maturity. So, so we, I'm saying all this to say the church bears some responsibility in the degradation of marriage, the degradation of intimacy in marriage, and the degradation of women. Because men were in charge. And if you want to be a mature believer, Paul is saying here, uh, don't, don't, don't be with one. So we have, um, we have uh, to acknowledge uh, what, is, what has gone on here. Uh, the, the, this woman, uh, Sue Bolin, is uh, a Bible person. She writes this. She says, the anger and frustration that drove feminism's history is legitimate. Women have been devalued and dishonored ever since the fall of man. Very real, harmful inequities needed to be addressed. And it's important to honor some of the success of feminist activists. But at the same time, we need to examine and expose the worldview that fuels much of feminist thought. So this is just a kind of a foreshadowing. We're going to get into more controversy and gender issues as we go through 1 Corinthians. But what she's simply saying here is that there's a reason why if you study feminism, for example, at a UC, they lay a lot of the things that women have had to endure in previous centuries at the feet of the church. And there's something to say for that, uh, that criticism. Uh, another man from around this time, a church leader, Augustine, writes this. He says, when married couples have relations overcome by desire, not for having offspring, but for the sheer physical pleasure of it, this is not to be praised, but is excused in comparison with what is worse because marriage intercedes and pleads on their behalf. This is the theology that's operational in the church. You can see how this is going to mess people up, mess marriages up, mess women up. So you don't have to be a a Greek scholar 
to see that these guys got this wrong. And we're going to look at what it, it, it says in just a moment. I'm still just coming out of this first verse. Uh, you, you don't have to be a, a Greek scholar to see that marriage is not like this. Well, if you can't quite hack what God really wants in your life, then go ahead and get married. No, a marriage should be honored by all, Hebrews uh, tells us. A passage that Bud read for us, uh, pulling a couple verses from that. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. This is something that is viewed as, as beautiful in Scripture, something that's, that's needed, marriage in general and union within marriage. Tim Keller comments on, on this aspect in Genesis, this theme of Genesis. He writes, the Genesis, Genesis narrative is implying that our intense relational capacity created and given to us by God, was not fulfilled completely by our vertical relationship with him. God designed us to need horizontal relationships with other human beings. So again, you don't have to be a Greek scholar to understand that this this isn't the way to take 1 Corinthians 7. All throughout the Bible, in many places, marriage and union within marriage is looked at as something beautiful. Proverbs 30 Verses 18 and 19. Three things are too wonderful for me. Four, I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. This is a wonderful thing. Proverbs presents it this way. A, a, a wonderful thing. Now this verse is a riddle, and I don't have time to go through this, and so be this is another passage I've never heard preached. Anybody ever heard this verse, this passage preached? Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't have time to go through it today, but maybe some of you will read this later. You have to look at the next verse to figure out what's going on here, and, and maybe um, by uh, popular request, if I get enough prayer card uh, notes, maybe we'll put this in here in some future Sunday. Um, my point in bringing it up wasn't to go through that, but to say in many places the Bible is emphasizing marriage and union within marriage as something beautiful. Something beautiful. The basic principle of interpreting Scripture is Scripture interprets Scripture. So when we read something that seems to contradict other Scriptures, we know we've got some work to do in our study. So what's behind what... Well, let, let, let's look at, at how the ESV has it before I go there. Now, concerning the manners about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. This is what the Corinthians were thinking. A faction of Corinthians in the church, they are thinking it is good for this not to happen. And so they are, th- th- this is the way out, where they live in this immoral culture and so on. And so in order to please God, in order to receive his blessing, in order to be forgiven, we, we understand, Paul, that we should stop doing this in our, in our marriages. This is what they are saying to him. So this is all verse 1. So what is behind this and what is behind every verse of Scripture is, is some sort of idol, some kind of struggle that you and I have and we need God's grace. And I think the struggle 
that is behind what the Corinthians wrote to Paul. They're thinking it's good for this not to be going on in our marriages, right? We're going to bring God glory. We're going to get his forgiveness and blessing, and we should abstain from this, right? What, what's behind that? I think what's behind that uh, sediment is the idol of deprivation or misery. And we don't have it in the exact same way that the Corinthians have it, most likely. But many of us have this idol. Some of us think, in order to get God's blessing, in order to get God's forgiveness, he must want me to be miserable. He must want me to suffer. He must want me to voluntarily endure suffering for suffering's sake so that he'll bless me and so that he'll forgive me. I'm not going to show, ask for a raise of hands, but I think some of us, some of us have this. Uh, this was something that was prevalent also throughout church history. I'm speaking more broadly now about this idea. Uh, we can refer to it as asceticism, but this, this idea, this theology that, that God wants us to be miserable, and the more miserable we are and the more misery we can bring to ourselves, the more suffering and sacrifice, the more blessing and forgiveness we'll get. I think this is what's behind what they wrote to Paul. We see this um, in the life of, of Martin Luther before he came to understand grace. This, this idol of, of deprivation and misery in order to get God's blessing and forgiveness. This idol of deprivation and misery. The solution for it, we're going to see in verses 1 through 7, is loving God through marriage. Uh, but back to Luther here. Luther had, uh, speaking more broadly now, uh, Luther, uh, his biographer writes, he fasted sometimes three days on end without a crumb. The seasons of fasting were more consoling to him than those of feasting. Lent was more comforting than Easter. He laid upon himself vigils and prayers in excess of those stipulated. He cast off the blankets permitted him and well nigh froze himself to death. So He thought he's going to get God's blessing and forgiveness by not using blankets in the winter in Germany in sub-zero temperatures. That, that God's going to somehow bless him and forgive him. So, so let me not use blankets at night as he's with his fellow brothers who have been called to ministry. So what's in the, going on in the Corinthians' heart, I believe, is this idol of deprivation, of misery, this false theology of asceticism. And Paul is going to respond to this. So let's come back to our Bibles now. I've spent a lot of time here on verse 1. We're going to move more quickly through the remaining verses. Let me read um, verse 1 again and, and pick up verse 2. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to touch a woman or not to have relations or as the NIV 1984 has it, not to marry. Verse 2, but since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So now Paul's responding to what they wrote. He's responding to the quote from the Corinthians. There is tons of immorality, both in Corinth and in the church. We've looked at some of that immorality in the, in the Corinthian church in previous weeks. And so what is the solution? The solution is that each one has his own wife. Notice the singular here, the singular nouns. His own wife, one. Her own husband. This is, this is how we are to roll. There is only one venue for our God-given desires for intimacy, and that is for marriage. This is what he's saying in verse 2. So the idol here is the, the idol of, of immorality and finding fulfillment outside of marriage. 
And so, again, the solution is loving God through marriage. This is what we see in verse 2. The problem he's mentioning in verse 2 is immorality. And it was like Vegas in Corinth. And it was, it was crazy. And there was all kinds of sexual morality going on. So I want to say something about how we disciple and shepherd our young people uh, in the church today regarding this. Um, our young people, and I'm just speaking in general now, the church in America, um, uh, our, our young people uh, are familiar with the idea of purity rings. They, they, they hear, I think, whether it's from mom and dad the believing mom and dad from the youth pastor, from whomever, they hear the first part of 1 Corinthians 6.18 to flee from this, to wait, to be pure. And they should hear that. They need to hear that. We need to have these conversations. But I think what is missing often in our discipleship and our shepherding ministry to young people is verse 2. And, and the rest of, of what we're going to read here and what we read in other places in the Bible, what's missing is the beauty of marriage and the union that takes place in marriage. What, what, what's missing is, is better teaching and shepherding of our young people that, that God's aim isn't to stop you from having and enjoying the union and the, and the desires and the pleasures that he's given you from, from fulfilling those. He's, he's not out to just stop you from this. Those need to hold on for, for marriage, for this, this wonderful thing. And so what is, what is missing in our discipleship of young people, I think, is a balance. We need to be balanced on the, the flea passages, run from this, wait, purity, and also uh, this is a beautiful thing that God has for you in the future when the Lord brings a Christian man and a Christian woman together. So this is, um, this is verse 2. Let's come back to our text here. Verse 3, let's look at verses 3 through 6. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. Let me read that verse again. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way... The husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Let me pause here for just a second. This last part of verse 4 is so radically countercultural. If we could transpose ourselves back into the first century, uh, the, the, the idea of women's rights wasn't even an idea. Women were subject to all kinds of abuse, of harassment, of a variety of things. I'm not just talking about in marriage. I'm talking about in in all aspects. And so sometimes critics will say the Bible is trapped in this culture of the first century, this antiquated culture. And that is so false. For Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write that a husband's body does not belong to him, but to his wife, is a radical statement in the first century. It is radically countercultural. It is, by and large, would have been accepted as wrong. 
by the culture at large. How, how could this be? This, this isn't how things go. The, the mutuality that is described here is something that would have been radically countercultural in the first century. Verse 5. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this, referring to this abstinence for the purpose of prayer. That's what the this is referring to. I say this as a concession, not as a command. So, kind of summarizing a little bit. They're thinking it is good for a man not to be in union with his wife. It's, it's good for a, a Christian married couple not to be in union. Paul is saying, do not deprive each other except for mutual consent for the purpose of prayer. And I'm saying this as a concession, not as a command. In other words, you don't necessarily need to do that. This is radically different this section of Scripture from how it has been understood for many centuries in the history of the church. And we, to a degree, are still in the wake of that, I think. And this is partly responsible for the imbalance that we have in teaching our children and our young people. And I mean our teenagers. When I say children, I'm meaning our 13, 14, 15, 16-year-olds. We're, we're very quick to teach them the no and the flee, and we should. And we're very slow to teach them the beauty and to spend time with them in that passage in Proverbs, or there's other passages that would have made us blush more I could have put up here today. But moms need to spend times with their teenage daughters and ask for the Lord's grace and how to have those conversations. And fathers need to ask for grace to have conversations about the beauty of union and marriage uh, to their sons. They need to hear both of these teachings. So in verses 3 through 6, the idol that is behind or the sin, the fallen condition that is behind virtually every verse of the Bible where we need grace, the, 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 condition, the uh, idol that is behind this is the idol of self-satisfaction. If you notice, if you look at these passages, it is not about the husband getting what he wants or the wife getting what she wants. It is about serving the other. It is a picture of the gospel is what marriage is. Christ washes the feet of his disciples. Jesus dies for us while we were sinners. And in marriage, we are called to serve one another. It is not about getting what one individual wants. It's about serving someone else, the idol of self-satisfaction. And so the solution here is loving God through serving your spouse in all ways. And, And here we're talking about in intimate ways. But in all ways. One commentator writes this about this passage. He says, The only exception Paul allows, the only exception when it comes to abstinence, is that a couple may, and we may sense the almost grudging way Paul allows this, abstain by mutual agreement in order to have a special season of prayer. But even then, they are not to do this for too long. And they are to make sure they do not let abstinence become a habit or will lead to temptations that could have been avoided. Even the option of temporary 
and spiritually focused abstention is only allowed as a concession. Okay, we made it through all that. Are you guys okay? Nobody's falling asleep today. Um, I don't think. Um, So this last verse, some of you who have uh, never been married or single or finding yourself in a single phase of life need to hear something, right? And so here, here, that's what we're going to do the remainder of our time. Look at verse 7. The remainder of our time is going to be focused for, for those in that stage of life. Verse 7. I wish that all men were as I am. And Paul here is referring to his singleness. I wish that all men were as I am. But each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift Another has that. What is Paul saying in verse 7? When he says, I wish that all men were as I am, he's saying, I, I'm, I wish that many people were in the situation that I'm in, this single situation. Because Paul w- w- lived just a crazy life of abandon for God's kingdom. The guy just basically, you know, g- gets on a ship, heads some place where there aren't believers shares the gospel with some people, crashes and sleeps wherever. As soon as some people come to know the Lord and there's enough there to build a church, he's out of there. He's on to the next place. That kind of lifestyle is not conducive for a family. So when he says, I wish, I wish. Where is it? I wish that all men were as I am. He's not saying this is the superior way to live. And if you're really mature, you're going to go this. He's, he's talking about the benefits of the single life. And he's saying this with sincerity. I, uh, I contacted uh, and thought of several uh, single people this week. And one of them was uh, Shirley uh, Brammer's sister. And uh, she's okay with me. Uh, uh, where, where are you guys? Oh, there you are. Shirley disappeared. Um, she, she was okay with me sharing some of her heart as a single woman and uh, being a single woman for a long time. And, and this is what she said about being single. And I think it relates to why Paul is saying, I wish that everyone was uh, the way I am. All right, I forgot about this slide. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Here's what she says. Uh, being single gives me a lot of extra time to invest myself in others. For example, I've had the sweet blessing of really being involved in my nieces and nephews' lives, and I have been much more available for them than I ever would be if I had family of my own. I can support them financially at times and in many other ways as well. There's a freedom in singleness that my married friends do not have. Being single allows me to be very involved in my church. My church is my extended family, and because I have time to serve and love to serve, it meets a need in both directions. I can be available just about any time. No one to really answer to except God. This is what's behind, I believe, the first part of verse 7. I wish that all men were as I am. This, this is what's behind it. It's not an elevation of, of the single life or celibacy over this degrading thing of marriage. So, Now, if we look at our culture, our Christian culture, we kind of do the opposite thing, don't we? Parents, 
of adult children, how many of you have been prompting your yet-to-be-married adult children to get married and to have children and to bring grandkids around? Right? Anybody, has anybody done that? <laughs> A few have. All right, I see some fingers pointing, but no hands going up. I probably shouldn't ask for uh, hands on on this one. This is our tendency, right? This is our culture's tendency. You've got to be married. We've kind of flipped. The pendulum has swung from where it was in the early centuries church to the other side that singleness is a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. So parents, have you considered that the Bible teaches that God gifts his children with singleness? Have you considered this? Have you looked at 1 Corinthians 7, 7? Look at the last part of it. Each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Paul is using the same word that's in Romans 12 for spiritual gifts here. And he is describing the gift of singleness and the gift of marriage. And that these come from God. So we shouldn't be envious of the person that's single And what's more common in our day in our culture is we shouldn't be envious as a believing Christian of the person who's married. Both of these are a gift from God. So the idol of gift coveting is what's behind verse 7. And for our culture, it's coveting, I want to be married. That's, 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 that's the way to live. That, that's the way we should go. That's, that's, the, that's, that's what I want. But Paul has an equity here describing both of these things as gifts. And we need to love God through the gift of marriage if we're married, and we need to love God through the gift of singleness if we are single. Tim Keller writes this. He says, Paul calls singleness a gift in 1 Corinthians 7.7. 7. Many have thought that Paul is talking about the complete lack of interest in or desire for marriage. In this view, to have the gift of singleness is to experience no emotional struggle, no restlessness, or wish to be married. No wonder so many joke and say, I don't think I have that gift. I think Keller's right. There isn't an indication here that this gift is a lifelong permanent gift of celibacy and that you have no desire to be married. This gift of singleness can be for a season of life. And Paul wishes that everyone was like me in the sense that they can benefit the kingdom of God. I want to show you just a a brief video here. It's just a couple minutes long uh, from a guy named Ben Stewart. He has some things to say about uh, singleness. Let's take a look at this. feel like it's always a little dangerous as a married man talking about singleness because I think single people go, thanks for your time, you know, like uh, you already got there or something. But I will say this. I got married a little later and I wanted to be married, but I loved my singleness. And, And that's not taking anything away from my wife. That's to say I embrace God gives us different seasons. And in 1 Corinthians 7, God is pretty clear about it through Paul that God will give you the gift of a season of singleness. And he says it to secure an undistracted devotion to the Lord, that it's a gift he's given you, that you can be minimal distractions in your way, and it's to secure a devotion to the Lord. And so that's what I would encourage people who are single. Would that describe your single experience? 
Is your single experience a, a devotion to the Lord that you're taking all that free time you have and free space? I mean, it's fascinating. I remember watching my friends have kids and just to go to the store down the street is this massive endeavor of loading up the minivan and to go on a vacation is just, I mean, you move heaven and earth to mobilize these munchkins. And even getting married, when you initially get married, I tell young men, man, one plus one equals four financially. I mean, all your costs are going to go up and you're not going to take your wife and sleep on a buddy's couch to travel Europe. Like, it's just not going to happen. Like, you're going to suddenly have higher bills and greater challenges. Even if you have a low-maintenance wife or low-maintenance husband, there's just added details and responsibilities with marriage and children that you don't have when you're single. I remember right after I got married, when the tsunami hit overseas, I had a single friend that jumped on a plane and went and just served. And there was a part of me that was like, oh, man, like, I couldn't do that. Like, I didn't have the finances together, couldn't leave my wife at that point. And you go, man, singleness afforded him that opportunity to just hop on a plane and go. And so I would encourage you, if you long to be married, tell that to the Lord. He cares. He's not cold hearted about it. But don't use your whole single experience to pine away about marriage. See it for what it is, ordained by God to secure an undistracted devotion to the Lord. And so take that time and dive deep into his word. I fell in love with God in those single years. Got rid of my TV and would just sit at my house and dive deep into his word. And I fell in love with him there. So much of what he taught me, I got to minister to so many people in my single years. I'm so deeply grateful for that season. And then he did bring the right woman. We've loved our married life together. I celebrate it, but I get to love every chapter. And I want you to do that. Don't don't miss this chapter by pining for the next one. Trust that God is guiding your future and enjoy every moment of the gift of singleness. The end of verse seven, Paul is not elevating singleness and celibacy. He's not elevating marriage he says that each man has his own gift from god one has this gift and one has another i want single people here today and parents who have perhaps not recognized this uh, teaching I, I i want us to see the beauty and the giftedness of god in both the single life and in the married life this is what the bible is saying in first corinthians 7 We'll finish up today with um, a few quotes from a woman named uh, Paige Benton Brown. I'm not sure. I didn't, I'm a bad pastor and didn't look at the bulletins. Is it in the bulletin? So there's an article. Uh, you don't need to turn there now, but I would encourage you, especially if you're single, especially if you need some help in your theology of singleness, to read this, uh, this article. These quotes are from that article, Paige Benton, Brent, Benton Brown. She writes this. She says, I'm not single because I am too spiritually unstable to possibly deserve a husband, nor because I am too spiritually mature to possibly need one. I am single because God is so abundantly good to me, because this is his best for me. I want to be married. She's an honest woman. I want to be married. I pray to that end every day. I may meet someone and walk down the aisle in the next couple of years because God is so good to me. I may never have another date and die an old maid at 93 because God is so good to me. A spouse is not a sufficient countermeasure for self. 
The gospel is the only antidote for egocentricity. Christ did not come simply to save us from our sins. He came to save us from ourselves. Let's pray together. Father in heaven.